This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Remember the data breach at Target late last year that resulted in hackers stealing information from about 40 million credit cards? That news was broken by my guest, Brian Krebs, who helped uncover the story. Just a few days later, he broke the story of a credit card breach at Neiman Marcus. Kreb writes about cybercrime and computer security for his blog, Krebs on Security, which he started in 2009. Before that, he spent 14 years working as a reporter at The Washington Post, where he covered tech policy, privacy, and computer security, and wrote the blog, The Security Fix. His book, Spam Nation, about organized cybercrime, is scheduled for publication in November. In order to do his work, he's learned computer code, the Russian language, and how to get onto black market websites and cybercrime networks. Cybercriminals who don't appreciate his work have found creative and frightening ways to harass him. Brian Krebs, welcome to Fresh Air. Let's start with what's probably the most famous story that you broke, which was the breach at Target. I had assumed, I guess I wasn't reading this carefully enough, I had assumed Target had reported the breach. That's not the way it worked. You discovered it. So let's start with, how did you find out? Right. Well, so let's let's be clear. This the Secret Service. Uh, well, according to Target, the Secret Service alerted uh, Target. I think on December twelfth. Um, I didn't get wind of this until. And so, for whatever reason, you know, Target was trying to figure out what was going on, figure out how bad it was, how they were going to talk about this at a very sensitive time. Uh, they didn't immediately disclose this, and it came to my attention that something wasn't right with Target, uh, I think on December 16th, when I started hearing from different sources in the financial community who were saying, you know, Brian, we are just seeing a tremendous number of our cards, probably an unprecedented number of our cards that we've issued to customers showing up for sale on this one underground store. And I, and I think it's important to kind of point something out here. And most people, when I talk to them about underground stores, you kind of get this blank stare, right? Like, what, are you, what, what exactly are you talking about? There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of these shops in the underground. And they're, they're not hard to find. If you know the URL, you know the IP address, you can load these, you can create an account. If you want to fund it with Bitcoins or whatever, uh, you can go ahead and buy uh, whatever they have for sale. But this shop, in particular, uh, was moving millions of stolen cards onto the market all at once. And uh, they, I worked with three different financial institutions. Uh, one was a very large financial institution, and uh, they acquired a whole bunch of their cards back uh, from this store. And sure enough, they had all been used between Thanksgiving and mid-December. If you go back and you look at each one of these cards and you see a, that they were all used at the same place within the same time frame, that's a pretty good indicator. It's called a common point of purchase. Uh, and it's a pretty good indicator that that's the source of the breach. So, oh, I see. so they get the cards, they check the numbers and to see what were these cards used to purchase. And they found that all of these cards that they bought had made purchases at Target. Therefore, maybe it was connected to yeah, that. At some point, yeah, and exactly. And at some point, you get beyond maybe to near certainty, uh -huh. right? I mean, if you, it's just a, it's just a math problem, right? I mean, you know, if if every if you you know if these banks acquire ten cards each, and there's three different banks, and they all were used at Target between you know between at the same three week time frame, that's a pretty good indicator. Uh, and, and at that point, I felt good enough to run a story, and I reached out to the company and said, looks like 
you know, you're having a bad day or bad week or bad month, or bad year or something like that. Uh, and they basically said, talk to the hand. Uh, so I read my story. They said they had a breach. They came out the next day, said, yeah, we had this little, uh, this little incident impacted like 40 million cards and, you know, 70 million people's personal information. Do companies often not want to acknowledge um, a, a credit card breach? And if so, why don't they want to acknowledge it? Well, nobody wants to acknowledge a breach period, whether it involves credit cards or more sensitive information. Companies are uh, obviously concerned that, about their public image, that it might hurt their stock price if they're a public company, uh, that, uh, that customers might lose confidence in the company and stop shopping there, uh, that their competitors, uh, and this is actually a pretty good concern, pretty valid concern, that their competitors are going to use it against them. Um, but at a very basic level, when let's just take the retail industry for example, um, this is a this is a industry that traditionally has been very focused on physical security as opposed to cybersecurity, right? I mean, most of their losses have to do with, you know, people coming into their stores and stealing stuff or their employees stealing stuff, um, and, and so these co- these companies tend to be in the business of what customer service, right? <laughs> They're not in the security business, so when when they have a security incident. It tends to take them a while to figure out what the actually happened, you know, and, and how bad it is. And no company wants to, you know, come out and, and say, hey, we had a breach and not be able to say anything, you know, sensible about what happened, how bad it is, you know. How and and whether it's it. fixed net? Fixed <laughs> whether it's fixed yet, exactly. Yeah. So can you describe how cyber criminals managed to steal tens of millions of credit cards? Well, they didn't steal physically the cards, but they stole the information from the cards. Yeah. Early on, uh, there were some questions about how the breach happened. And, and uh, I, did, I think the Wall Street Journal ran a story saying it was it was tied to some contractor breach uh, that was working with Target that had a security uh, problem. And uh, I got a I got some information indicated it was this heating and air conditioning company in Pennsylvania, uh, and reached out to them and they confirmed the Secret Service had visited them uh, and, and was investigating, but they didn't want to say much more about that. But it, it seemed pretty clear that uh, that this breach started the, the bad guys somehow got their foot in the door because they hacked into this contractor, uh, and that contractor had some modicum of access to targets. Uh, network, whether it was their internal network or what, uh, it was apparently enough for them to get their foot in the door uh, and, and leverage it, uh, you know, to, to, to pry it open a bit more. Uh, and once they were in, they do like most criminals do. They case the joint for a little bit, uh, try to figure out where the crown jewels were. And at some point, they started deploying malicious software to each and every one of the cash registers within uh, the organization. And, and, you know, this is not a small undertaking. So you think about, I think Target said there were about 1,800 stores across the United States. Uh, you got to figure each one of these stores has between probably 20 and 40 checkout lanes. So that's a ridiculous number of, uh, of machines that they have to compromise. Fortunately for the bad guys, these tend to be pretty uniform systems, right? They don't differ from machine to machine. They're, they're all the same. And so somehow they they compromised uh, the method by which Target updates these individual cash registers, uh, and they pushed out a malicious update and basically infected each and every one of these cash registers with malicious software that sits there and waits for a card transaction to go through. And then there's a 
blink of an eye where that transaction, uh, the credit card number and information that's stored on the back of that uh, credit card is not encrypted. And it's it's in that blink of an eye that that malicious software is designed to to snatch that information and take a take a, record a copy of it and then periodically upload it to a centralized server within Target's organization. At which point that information was sent uh, outside of the organization's network. So, do you know about a lot of breaches at uh, other you know stores and companies that? the public isn't really aware of. I mean, is this, is this like so common right now? Yeah, it is. It's incredibly common. And, and so I did a, a piece uh, not long ago uh, that profiled a, uh, a what I call a dumps shop. It's another one of these sites that's selling stolen credit card information. This one was by far the most sophisticated and and actually humorous one that I've ever seen. It was called McDumples. <laughs> and, yeah, and they're like violating every single, uh, you know, McDonald's trademark there is. But it's got like this gangstered up Ronald McDonald and he's pointing a gun at the, you know, at the screen. And, and their, their motto is, I'm swiping it, right? <laughs> Uh, but but they uh, they they cater to wholesale buyers, so people who are really in in the market for buying thousands, if not tens of thousands, of stolen credit cards at once. And uh, so that story that I wrote about McDumples really tries to educate people about uh, how you know just just by looking at what they have for sale, you can get a sense of how pervasive this problem is. And I found that over three or four months. Uh, these guys had a, a credit card stolen from uh, for sale that were stolen from merchants in just about every U.S. state. Um, and and when I started looking deeper into this, uh, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, it, it's probably I get this question a lot from people. They go, "Are you? Are you? Are you wow, you must see a lot of really bad stuff, uh, you know, cybercrime wise." And I mean, do you bank online? Do you shop online? What's that about? And I. And lately, I've been telling people, you know, I actually feel safer shopping online than I do at a Main Street store or some sub shop or, you know, a liquor store or the car wash or whatever, because they're getting compromised left and right. Again, these are organizations that are in the customer service business. Once they have their system set up and it works, they never touch it again. <laughs> so you can imagine uh, these things get out of date. They they get lazy. They set it up so that one login can be used to administer all of the systems. You know, you can you can imagine what actually could go wrong there. So it's surprising at how common these vulnerabilities are, and how so many organizations are similarly vulnerable. So another breach that you've written about, and you were the first to write about this breach, was a breach at Experian, and Experian is a credit bureau which means that they, they monitor credit ratings, they provide credit reports. So a breach there is a big deal because they have a lot of information. It's not Experian per se that was breached. Experian acquired a company that was breached, which led to Experian's exposure. So um, what did, could you explain what this breach was? Uh, sure. So there was an identity theft service operating in the underground that sold access to people's uh, most personal information. So their social security number, dates of birth, mother's maiden name, anything you'd need to assume somebody's identity. Uh, this service got the data. Uh, they bought it uh, from a company that was acquired by Experian. And this company uh, called Court Ventures is a data broker or data aggregator. And their job is just to basically hoover up 
all the information they can about U.S. consumers and then sell that information uh, to whoever wants to buy it. So in this case, uh, you know, companies like Experian, uh, TransUnion, Equifax, um, these are sort of the gatekeepers of your personal information uh, as it relates to who you are uh, online and in the real world. So uh, data aggregators will uh, sell uh, information it's basically packaged information. So uh, they will sell this to marketers. They will sell it to advertisers. And those advertisers will come to these data aggregators and say, look, we want to reach this market. We want to reach soccer moms, you know, who are divorced, <laughs> uh, that are making more than $100,000 a year and maybe bought a car last year. Right? And, and that level of detail is uh, possible because data aggregators like Experian have so much information about what we do online and in the real world that they can splice and dice people into little buckets, little thimbles, if you will, uh, very granularly. And so that, in a sense, is what uh, these companies do. That's their business. Um, but they also sell information to uh, a, a different set of clients, so law enforcement, private investigators, and that data tends to be a lot more sensitive. So the information I mentioned before, license, uh, driver's license information, um, and then, uh, you know, criminal background records, uh, civil uh, court records, uh, ownership records, things that would be useful in tracking people down. And in point of fact, the guy running this criminal identity theft service uh, got access to all this information by posing as a private investigator based in the United States, uh, when, of course, he was actually this, uh, you know, Vietnamese kid in his 20s <laughs> operating out of Vietnam and, and paying for all his information uh, via wire transfers from Singapore. So um, so you, you were tipped off about this breach. Mm -hmm. um, so what information was revealed? Who was compromised? Well, we're still sort of figuring that out. But what we know is that uh, the Secret Service uh, arrested the guy responsible for running that service and then basically pretended to be him for many months just to get uh, to understand, to build dossiers uh, on the people who were, who were buying dossiers on Americans, essentially, and try to figure out what they were using it for. And uh, what they found is that uh, he had 1,300 paying customers uh, that looked up, I think, a total of uh, 4 million consumer records over uh, a couple of years. And these guys were using it for identity theft, establishing new lines of credit in people's names, and an increasingly common form of fraud uh, where uh, the fraudsters file your taxes for you, which is a kind of identity theft that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, right? I mean, it's bad enough that you get your, you know, identity stolen, but somebody files your, you know, your taxes for you with the IRS and, you know, claims that you're due this huge refund and the IRS sends you this money. And then you, you figure out that not only was their identity stolen, but now you have to deal with the IRS too. Um, so a ridiculous number of his customers were actually using it uh, for tax return fraud. Oh, that's a pretty big breach. It is a big breach. I guess what, what makes it scary is that since companies like Experian have so much information, if they're breached, that's really terrible. 
Right. And this is part of the reason. I mean, people have come out, you know, I've been criticized by Experian and by others saying, you know, it really isn't uh, fair of you to call them out like this. But uh, particularly given the, the complex nature of the relationship that this criminal running this ID theft service exploited uh, between these companies. But, uh, you know, my point is that's neither here nor there. I want to know how many people did this in- impact? Uh, why isn't there more uh, discussion about this? And what it comes down to is these companies sort of have a de facto uh, mandate from our lawmakers here in the United States to act as the major credit bureaus. Uh, it's not clear to me, though, that they have a whole lot of accountability uh, when things like this happen. And again, I'm not saying it's it's all experience faults or that it's even mostly their fault. Uh, the truth is uh, they've denied any sort of responsibility here. Uh, just about every party involved has denied responsibility. And uh, the Maya reporting shows that there have been uh, thousands of consumers that have had their identity stolen either via tax fraud or, or new credit cards opened in their name or new bank accounts or whatever. Um, and so far, nobody's really been called to task for this. Were you onto the story before or after the Secret Service? Oh, long after. Okay. Um, but this is, a, this is another really frustrating story for me because uh, my question is, okay, so these, this identity service had access to 200 million consumer records. Now, I'm not saying that, that these customers of this identity theft service actually looked up 200 million records, but they certainly had access to those. Uh, they had to pay for every lookup, uh, and so did the ID theft service. So they didn't look up 200 million <laughs> records. Um, but, but, you know, who's in this case, who's responsible for notifying co- uh, consumers who were affected by this? Uh, and as near as I can tell, not, none of these consumers have been notified by anybody. So, uh, you know, Congress has had a couple of hearings where they brought some uh, Experian folks up to talk about this, uh, and maybe one or two hard questions have been asked of them. But that's pretty much it. They were more interested in, you know, the, the consumer dossiers that these companies were building on people and who they were selling those to. But if I, I just want to make a point here uh, that, that is the most galling thing for me, having broken the story on the target breach and uh, this Experian thing, is not long after the target breach uh, became public knowledge, the uh, the company turned around and, and you know, basically pulled out a page from what has become sort of the MO, the, the playbook of public response that companies have a breach. They, they purchase uh, huge uh, numbers of licenses for identity theft uh, detection or uh, prevention services uh, from companies like Experian. And this, like I said, has become sort of the default uh, response for companies that have a breach, even in cases like a Target where identity theft protection service really doesn't do anybody any good because these services, well, first of all, they're of dubious value to begin with, but they don't do anything to help you monitor fraud on existing accounts like credit cards. Uh, So anyway, Target buys identity theft protection service for 40 million people, essentially, from Experian. Now, (laughs) essentially what they've done is said, okay, uh, Guys, just customers, we're really sorry about this breach. Um, and to make it, to make up for it, we're going to go ahead and sign you up for this service uh, at Experian. 
uh, which, by the way, is one of the biggest data brokers on the planet. And we would like you to go ahead and give them all the information they didn't already have so that they can package it up and sell it to marketers. I mean, that is the default response uh, when companies have a data breach today. Uh, and, and to me, that, that has to change uh, because it's, it's insulting. Because you have uncovered so much cybercrime, there are some cyber criminals who would really like to seek their revenge against you. And some of them have come up with some pretty uh, unusual ways of doing it, including, <laughs> this is a really interesting one, the guy who sent heroin to you, notifying the police that he was sending heroin to you, expecting them to come and bust you when the heroin arrived. <laughs> so tell, yeah. who was behind this? Right. So at the time, I really didn't know much about who was uh, behind this. But uh, I did notice that there was an individual. Uh, this was probably spring of 2013. Uh, an individual on Twitter uh, started sending me really nasty uh, and malicious tweets. And uh, some of his uh, Russian-speaking buddies also started sending the same things. And, and he changed his Twitter profile to be, uh, you know, a, a picture of an action figure holding up my severed head and then it was a picture of uh, my face with gestapo uniform and and you know uh, male genitalia next to it or whatever uh and so I, I was like okay what is going on and this guy starts uh really harassing me and i figured out that the guy who was harassing me actually was an administrator of a very exclusive cybercrime forum uh, that caters to Russian and Ukrainian um, uh, criminals who essentially do all kinds of card fraud and identity theft. And I worked with a source of mine who was able to essentially get me access to his forum, which was no small feat. But uh, uh, it was it was none too soon because uh, it became very clear that he is he was in the middle of hatching a plan to send heroin to my house. So his goal was to he took up a collection uh, of other crooks on the forum, and I think they collected like two bitcoins, which at the time was I don't know you know about a thousand dollars, and they they went on the Silk Road which is a, uh, you know, the place where you can buy heroin on the internet, uh, essentially, uh, or guns or whatever you want. And, and they, they, it's like a plan... black market site. Yeah, it's a black market, the black market bazaar. So they, their plan was to send the drugs to my home and then, uh, you know, call the police when it arrived and, and say, oh, the drugs are well hidden, you know, make sure you search his house really well. Uh, and and spoof a call from my neighbors, basically saying, you know, Krebs got people coming in and out of the house at all hours. He's, you know, he's been like lazing around the porch, or I'm not sure. I think he's on drugs, and now he's, you know, buying drugs. Uh, well, so thankfully, I was able to sort of track this scheme as it was unfolding. Uh, they even put the tracking number for the shipment in the forum uh, posting, which so I could track this the drugs as they were headed to my house. I called the police and said, "Look, I'm not a druggie, uh, you know, and and here's how you know." Uh, I never forget the the cop came out to take a re, take a report, and uh, yeah, I'm showing him all these screenshots and and say, you know, I believe just trust me, okay? I know it's in Russian, but this is what they're saying, and you know, you could see the pictures of the heroin, the, the guy they're buying them from, and that guy's just shaking his head the whole time, and I, you know, he he's he takes the report and he's like, all right, you know, give give me a call when the drugs come and we'll pick them up, you know? I said, okay. He goes, I said, I never forget. He goes, I said, uh, I said, all right, well, well, thanks for coming, you know, be safe and. I hear him mutter as he walk out the door. He's like, "Yeah, I'm not the one getting you know Russian sending drugs to my house." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, they did show up, and uh, I called the cops. They came and picked him up, and and that was that. Um, 
And then I, uh, yeah, I got really curious, as you can imagine, about, all right, who was this jokester uh, that uh, that sent to drugs to my house? Um, and I, like, I wanted to know who he was in real life. So it really wasn't super difficult to figure that out. Uh, and I figured out he was a, a Ukrainian fraudster who was actually living in Italy with his wife and, and young uh, boy. And he was running a card credit card fabrication factory uh, in Naples. And uh, I shared this information with uh, some friends uh, who shared it with some other friends, I think. And uh, uh, a few weeks ago, got a heads up that uh, that basically this guy, is, who went by the name The Fly, uh, you know, that he'd been arrested. Uh, and um, so that was kind of a cathartic moment for me. <laughs> it must have given you great relief, too, because after... After you reported him to the police, he sent a floral cross yeah. to your wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's a that's a very threatening. It, it thing was to do. he he was uh, kind of, I think I, he was kind of embarrassed uh, because I wrote about their scheme and my foiling their scheme, and so he was kind of upset about that. So I was at Black Hat uh, and DefCon, which are back to back security conferences, and uh, I called my wife, said, "I here I you know I'm landed, I'm I'm coming home." And she's crying, and I said, "Well, you know what happened?" And she told me that this you know life size cross uh, with a note for her. Uh, had arrived and said, uh, you know, dear Jennifer, we're really sorry, but you married the wrong guy. Uh, you know, rest in peace, but we'll we'll always take care of you. Don't worry. And at this point, I was really angry. And I reached out to the guy on Twitter again, and I said, listen, you jerk. You reached out, out to the perpetrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then by this time, I had figured out his real name and the wife, his wife's name and his kid's name and where he lived. And I said... Uh, Hey, how'd you like it if your wife, Irina, got an interesting package in the mail? How'd you like it if your son, Max, didn't come home from school one day? And how does that feel? And he laughed and, and just laughed it off and said, oh, haha, you know, I'll just wait for the FBI. And, uh, but he never bothered me again after that. What, were you, what message were you intending to say? When you wrote, how would it feel if her son didn't come home from... You weren't threatening to kidnap his son. No, no, no. I just wanted to... I wanted him to know that... So a lot of these guys perpetrating cybercrime, they, they do so because they think they're anonymous. They think they're, they can't be found out. They think they can't be... Uh, nobody can touch them in the real world. And that's true to a certain extent for guys that are in Russia and Ukraine, as long as they never leave those countries. Um, but... When you're talking about individuals that are in other parts of the the world that are that are that are responsible for these types of crimes, um, that's not the case. And one of the things that I've spent a lot of my time uh, as an independent reporter working on is identifying people who don't want to be found, and essentially giving them an opportunity to to explain their actions, but essentially. You know, putting that information out there, saying, "Look, you, 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 you think you can uh, these things? You don't. There are no consequences for what you're doing, but there are, uh, and and eventually this stuff catches up with you, uh, and that's a big part of actually uh, the book that I've written uh, is is all about. Right, you have a book coming out in the fall. Yes, in uh, in no on November eighteenth. Uh, it's by uh, Source Books. Uh, it's called Spam Nation, and it is essentially about uh, two of the biggest cybercrime kingpins there ever were, 
essentially doing battle with each other, trying to destroy each other, and for better or for worse, trying to use me as a proxy for that. <laughs> essentially, uh, these two guys that collectively employed probably the most infamous virus writers and spammers on the planet, uh, paid hackers to break into each other's operations, steal years worth of emails, uh, chat records, uh, you know, banking documents, uh, everything that described, you know, their, how their entire criminal operations ran, and leak that to U.S. law enforcement and to yours truly. And so I've had a lot of time to really uh, dig through this information and, and uh, dig, you know, figure out how this weird world war, works. But also it's allowed me to very, I think, very accurately figure out who these guys are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, – you'd be surprised at how small this world is uh, when you get right down to it. Most of these guys actually know each other. So what else have hackers done to you out of revenge for things you've revealed about them? Mm. Uh, I can't always say it's revenge. Uh, It's sort of like the the heroin case. Some of this just, maybe it's become sort of a meme uh, or trend for people just to pick on Brian Krebs. Um, But in March of last year, the heavily armed police force showed up at my home uh, apropos of nothing. Uh, somebody had called in, they call it swatting. Somebody had called in a fake hostage situation at my home, said, uh, you know, they said that Russians had broken into my home and shot my wife. And then I was hiding in the closet, uh, send, you know, guns and, and, uh, forces to get these guys out of my house. Uh, and, uh, that was a, that was a pretty troubling experience. So if, they, if I they, never have, they actually showed up? They showed up. And in fact, I had called six months in advance uh, the non-emergency number for the local police department and said that this actually might happen. Some of the guys that I write about tend to do this for fun uh, to each other. And uh, the guy that took the report, he'd never heard of swatting. He didn't really even know what it, what it was. And I said, yeah, look, here, here's, what, here's what happens. Here's my cell phone. Give me a call. If you get somebody who says there's a hostage situation going on in my house, just give me a call yeah, before you roll truck with the troops to my house. And uh, to their credit, they actually did call. My phone was upstairs. I was downstairs vacuuming because I was getting ready to have uh, company over. Um, And uh, I I just happened to open the door, and there's this heavily armed police force pointing shotguns and AR-15s and pistols at my face. And it was uh, was, uh, – if that never happens again, it will be too soon. (laughs) So even though you called, they still sent out the SWAT team? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, they did. Uh, And they put – you know, they had me walk – Put my hands up, uh, walk, and this was, it was about 30 degrees. I'm in my gym shorts and a T-shirt and socks, and they had me walk down my front stoop uh, backwards, uh, and then they handcuffed me and put me in the squad car. And uh, You know, this is all happening at about 5, quarter to 6 in the evening on a weekday. So all the people trying to come home from work or you know, they, they, the police have barricaded the entrance to our neighborhood. You know, people are staring out their windows. And, you know, so. <laughs> it was quite a scene. Awkward. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, they're taking them away. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess right, so, the other things that happen uh, constantly. Well, no, did you did you contact this guy who was responsible for 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 the swatting incident? I I, I did. I spoke with him at length. Uh, he is a young man. Spoke with him via the internet. Uh, yes, via instant message. At, uh, 
he's a young man with a very colorful past uh, and basically really talented hacker who's broken into some very, very sensitive places and uh, caused a lot of problems for people. And uh, he's, he's currently dealing with a whole bunch of different criminal charges, but he's a minor. You know, he's under 18. So uh, the federal system really doesn't know what to do with minors, when it, at least when it comes to cybercrime charges. And I think a lot of these guys know it, so they consider it pretty harmless. And at the end of the day, they consider that if they get in trouble, they'll be out of trouble within a year or two. Do you think some of this is um, the equivalent of a cyber criminal's idea of a a prank call, a phony phone call? This is a tricky question to answer, I think, because my sense is that a lot of the cybercrime that's being perpetrated today is is being done by young kids who, frankly, have nothing better to do. They've got no adult supervision in their life, and they do it because it makes them some spending money and gives them a sense of superiority over their friends or, you know, their peers and maybe uh, society at large, right? Um, on the other hand, I can say for sure that the other side of the coin are some very bad people. Uh, and I think it's never a good idea to dismiss your personal security uh, and safety and that of your family, particularly when you're dealing with what I would consider sociopaths. Um, it, it's my belief that a huge percentage of people involved in cybercrime uh, are probably at best narcissists of the nth degree, uh, but more typically they're, they are sociopaths and they find elaborate, if not very imaginative ways to justify spreading widespread societal harm for their own personal pleasure and gain. Um, and I think it would be a mistake to discount the willingness of these people to cause harm mm-hmm. uh, to those they might view as threatening their business or self-interest. So, you know, in short, I, I do a lot of different things to protect myself, my family, and my assets from harm, uh, not many of which I want to get into detail here, but it's, it's definitely a, a concern of mine, and, and my wife, thank God, has a, has a pretty good sense of humor. So, you know, there's so many scams to watch out for in terms of cybercrime. Give us some basic tips of things that we should do uh, whether we're shopping at a store or online or just opening up our email. Yeah, so for one thing, I, I have a three rules sort of mantra, which is, and the first one is, if you didn't go looking for it, don't install it. Okay, so this is, you know, you go to a site and it says, hey, uh, you know, in order to use, to, to view this content, you need to install this. Well, not, probably not the best idea because you don't really know what they're giving you to install. Uh, so if you if you think you need to install something, go to the vendor of that software, get it from them, uh, you know, and do it that way. Uh, if you installed something, update it. Right. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of people's computers no longer belong to them uh, because it gets taken over by malicious software that basically installs itself because people don't update the stuff that's plugged into their browser, right? So it might be Flash or Java or Adobe Reader or whatever, um, you know, and, and they go to a site that, uh, that is hacked and all of a sudden their computer doesn't belong to them anymore and all their passwords and everything on it's, you know, stolen. So if you installed it, update it. And then the third one is if you don't need it anymore, get rid of it. It's one less program to worry about, one less program to update, et cetera. So that, that covers a lot of the cybercrime that might hit you as a consumer using the computer. The other thing is, is be really careful with email. I mean, a majority of this stuff uh, comes through spam. Um, 
via malicious links and emails or attachments, be extremely uh, wary of anything sent to you in email. Is there a way to know if your computer's been compromised and it's being used, used as part of a botnet? You know, it's, it's, it's really, really important that you keep up to date with this stuff, uh, the software updates, and, and be wary about what people are sending you in email uh, because it's a lot easier to uh, keep your system from getting infected than it is to figure it out, figure it out once it's infected and figure out how to fix it after damage is done. And increasingly, and I say this, this is a really important point because it used to be, you know, you had to go to some help forum and you know, get some volunteer to help you figure out how to remove the software. These days, if your system gets compromised, there's an excellent chance that all of your data, so all of your pictures, your uh, important files, anything that you value on your system is going to be held for ransom. Held for ransom? Uh, what do you mean? They call it ransomware. And so when, when the first thing this, this, this malware does is it encrypts all of your data with very, very difficult to crack encryption. Uh, encryption that would be hard for, say, the NSA to even break. And they say, hey, look, uh, <clears throat> then you get a pop-up. Once it's done with this process, it lets you know your system's infected. It says, hey, uh, you know, your friendly neighborhood cyber criminal here, uh, sorry to bother you, but we've, we've encrypted all your files. You have 72 hours to pay up or we'll delete your files forever. And it's really sad when you talk to people who've been hit by this because, unfortunately, there's, there's not a lot you can tell them. I mean, they can pay their ransom or they can kiss their files goodbye because increasingly you don't get a second chance. You, you know, when, when your computer gets compromised, as I said, it's not your computer anymore and it isn't your data anymore. Somebody else owns it. Is this why you wrote in your blog that 2014 may be the year extortion went mainstream? <laughs> yeah, I, it, partly. Uh, this ridiculous number of these uh, cyber attacks now involve some kind of ransomware component. And uh, the other part of it is that uh, recently we started seeing regular Main Street businesses uh, getting things, uh, notices in the snail mail saying, um, hey, unless you want a massive number of complaints to say the health inspector or you know people to trash your reputation on Yelp or you know unless you want the cops showing up you know responding to bomb threats at your business you know all these disruptive things you will pay us you know one or two bitcoins or i don't know what it is you know the equivalent of like a thousand dollars so these are sort of like shakedowns have been going on forever right you know the mob has sort of done this forever you know the protection money but now it's kind of you know these these cyber criminals are, are are finding new ways to extort people that kind of blur the lines between cyber crime and you know real world fraud well brian krebs thank you so much for talking with us and stay safe and secure hey, thanks pleasure's all mine Brian Krebs writes the blog Krebs on Security. His book Spam Nation about organized cybercrime is scheduled for publication in November. Coming up, John Powers reviews the French film Violette based on the story of trailblazing French novelist Violette Leduc, who was friends with Simone de Beauvoir. This is Fresh Air. <laughs> 